0: Emily has restored my love for the book of Esther. I'm like, whatever she's preaching, and whatever that guy was preaching, oh my gosh, I like what Emily's doing way better. She's going to finish off the book of Esther. Let's give it up for Emily Swan, our own Emily Swan. Well, it's hard not to do it a little better when you talk about Esther as burlesque, right? (laughs) You know, one of the things I've been most um, shocked about, just going off topic a little here is... You know, I've started delving a little bit more into Jewish commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures, and sometimes Ken's done a lot of that throughout his life. So um, taking that prompt, I've started reading through a lot more of the Jewish commentators, and I'm like, oh, there's like entirely different takes. And like, h- how have we Christians gotten away with just sort of washing our hands of the Jewish tradition? It's kind of mind-boggling. But before we get into Esther, I wanted to start by showing you guys my favorite t-shirt. <laughs> I I I don't know if you can see it, it says Myrtle Beach. It's not, what it says isn't such a big deal here. I I bought this this summer when I went to Myrtle Beach with my sister and my two little nieces and my nieces and I, we just, we love sharks. So the three of us wanted to get matching shark t-shirts. And this is totally like, I love this shirt. I will totally wear this out and I wear it proudly. I almost preached in it today, but then I thought, well, But it's a good visual for something I'm going to talk about. So just hold that in your mind. Do you mind? (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. Because a couple of weeks ago, I convinced my wife, Rachel, to take me out to see a movie called The Meg. Have you guys seen that? Anybody? Nobody's actually seen it? Okay, well, okay, yeah, we got a Meg there. The Meg is a shark movie. But it's a shark movie that's a little bit more like Sharknado. Right? It's a ridiculous movie with big ridiculous monsters and ridiculous lines. And the Meg is just short for the word Megalodon. It's about a prehistoric Megalodon, which is essentially an enormous shark that's like a billion times bigger than a whale. And how somehow this has been living at the bottom of the ocean and it made its way up, you know, to where people are and it just starts eating people. Spoiler alert, like, almost everybody dies. (laughs) And we agreed it needs a few more super cheesy lines, but you know, for me, that was like a solid summer flick right there. And Rachel, she's like, okay, so let me get this straight. You're willing to go see The Meg enthusiastically, but you won't watch Jaws with me? (laughs) I've never seen Jaws. And I was like, no, 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 there's a difference, right? Like, The Meg is funny, scary. The Jaws is, like, actually scary. Like, to me, that feels like something that could happen. So I actually, we, we tried to go see it last night. Johnny was going to go, too. And Betsy, with my small group, Jaws was showing, this is so macabre, at Fuller Pool. <laughs> so you get in the water. I had that T-shirt on. And we were going to watch Jaws. And I was terrified. But darn, we got stormed out. And they had to cancel it. <laughs> So the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the story of Esther. Let me tie it in here, right? And we've been talking about how the book of Esther is more like a comedy, that it's like burlesque. It's an over-the-top melodrama. It's more like The Meg than it is about Jaws. right? So there's some pretty intense violence in the book, but the violence, for the most part, is meant to make us laugh. And there's no part of this story that's funnier than the ending. So for those of you who missed the first two parts of the story... I'm gonna catch us up pretty quickly, just telling it as a story, and then I'm gonna move into more detail for the final part as we wrap up this three-part series. So, once upon a time, there was a brainless and narcissistic king. So hard to imagine, right? (laughs) A brainless and narcissistic king, and that king had a wicked advisor who who used the king as a puppet. And that wicked advisor's name was Haman. And if you were here last week, we talked about how Haman was the most villainy of villains. And so one day, as Haman the villain is walking past the king's gate, he's going into the palace, he notices a Jewish man that's sitting alongside the road, and his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai refused to either stand up or bow down to villain Haman as he passed. And this enraged him. And so Haman stormed into the palace and he went to the king and he asked the king to kill all of the Jewish people in all of the Persian empire in retaliation for Mordecai's slight. Right? If one Jewish person won't bow to me, then they're all going to die. And in fact, he told the king that he would make a sizable donation to the palace coffers in exchange for this decree of genocide. And because this narcissistic and brainless king is easily influenced by his peers, and because this king loves money, he agrees to Haman's request to have all of the Jewish people put to death in exchange for this donation to the imperial treasure chests. But there was a little surprise that we came to last week, right? What the king doesn't know is that that man who refused to bow down to the villain, that man Mordecai, is his wife's cousin, right? It's like dun-dun-dun. The king is married to a young woman named Esther, and Esther's cousin is that Jewish man Mordecai, making Esther also Jewish. So if the king, her husband, orders all of the Jewish people to be killed, this will include her. And so when Queen Esther finds out that Haman the villain has asked the king to kill all of the Jewish people in all of Persia, from India to Ethiopia, she concocts a plan. And she decides that she's going to approach the king, her husband, herself, and just beg him not to carry out this atrocity. Right? Please don't kill my people. But she feels like she needs to just butter him up just a little bit first. So she starts by asking him to have dinner. She says, well, I just would like to have dinner with you and with your trusted advisor, Haman, the villain. Just us three. So they get together and they eat and they drink wine and Haman's ego is stroked and he's happy and lighthearted. Until, that is, he walks out of the dinner and once again he passes Mordecai, that Jewish man by the side of the road who will not bow down to him. And again, he is enraged. He's like, I've just been dining with the king and the queen. Doesn't he see that I deserve to be respected? And so Haman goes home that night and he brags to his wife and his friends about how honored he is by the king. Right? He thinks I'm a great guy. He said so on Twitter. But all of that means nothing to me when I pass by Mordecai, that defiant man. So Haman's wife, who's had to put up with this, she suggests, and she's evil too, but she suggests they build a 75-foot pole on which they can impale Mordecai's head and display it for everyone to see. And so that's what they did that night. They constructed a sharpened pole all night, and then they had it raised up. And that's where we left off last week. Right? We're really at this dark point in the plot when it seems like all of the Jewish people in the land are going to be exterminated by order of the king, it seems like Esther is going to die with them, and Haman the villain is at home and erecting this giant impaling stick for his enemy Mordecai, who won't bow to him. So at this point, Queen Esther, she's now dined with her husband and with the villain Mordecai one time, and they have plans to dine again the next evening. But that night, that brainless king couldn't sleep. And so he's laying in bed, and he's tossing, and he's turning. And finally, he calls to his advisors. He says, bring out the annals of the king. Right? Bring out the recorded history of everything that has happened in my court. Right? It's like a, a play-by-play book for a narcissistic king who wants to keep reliving his past glories. Tell me all the great things I've done. And as his servants are reading aloud to him from this collection, it was found written that a Jewish man named Mordecai the same Mordecai who wouldn't bow to the villain, had once saved the king's life. He'd once saved the king's life by alerting him to an assassination plot. So some time ago, two of the king's guards had planned to murder him, and Mordecai overheard them conspiring, and he went and he told the king about that plot, right? So he was a loyal subject. And so the king, hearing this story as he's in bed, and remembering what had happened, you know, it was one of those like, oh, yeah. He sat up in bed, and he demanded to know, What honor, what advancement has been conferred on this Mordecai, that Jewish man who sits at my gate who saved my life? And his servant's like, well, you know, nothing's been done for him. And so the king says, Well, I'm gonna need to ask my advisor, you know, that Haman, the villain, what to do to honor Mordecai. Right then, in the middle of the night, the king hears a noise. Right? You can just see it being acted out. Who's that in the court? Now remember, Haman the villain had gone home that night after eating and after drinking with the king and queen, and he and his wife had just erected that pole on which they wanted to impale Mordecai's head. And his wife said, why don't you wait until morning before you go to the king and ask him to kill Mordecai? But Haman, he couldn't have any of that. He was in a hurry. He was like, I am so convinced of my own importance, I'm just gonna rush over to the king's house in the middle of the night. So he runs to the palace right then and there, and he's probably still drunk from the wine that he'd had at dinner. And he gets up and he start, we start to see like the climax of the whole story coming together, right? This is a setup for a great comedic scene. Because over here we've got the king who's just remembered that that Jewish man Mordecai saved his life and he wants to talk to Haman about how he can honor Mordecai. And over here, Haman the villain is running in and he's hoping to convince the king to kill Mordecai, and neither one knows what the other wants, right? So this is a comedy of errors. Think Shakespeare. So the king heard the noise, and he says, Who's that in the court? And his servants yell back, It's Haman! And the king says, Let him in! So Haman the villain comes rushing into the king's bedroom, the king's just sitting there, and the king asks him, he says, Okay, let's say there's a man that I'd like to honor, what do you think should be done for such a man? And Haman, of course, assumes that he's that man. Right? He had just spent last night dining with the king and with the queen, and he's scheduled to dine with the king and the queen again the next night. So he says to himself, and I picture this like an aside, if it's being acted out, it's like he turns to the audience, all the action stops, and he says, well, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And the audience knows, but he doesn't, right? So he turns back and he says to the king, he says, Well, for the man that the king desires to honor, you should have someone bring him a royal robe, one that the king himself has worn. And your servants should bring him a royal horse, one that the king himself has ridden on with a royal crest on its head. And then let that robe... And let that horse be entrusted to one of the king's most entrusted princes, and let them robe the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honor, right? Because Haman would love nothing more than for that to be done for him. I mean, that would mortify most people, I think. But he's like, oh, yeah, that would be so sweet, because he thrives on power, and he Thrives on public displays of his specialness. So while Haman is like wringing his hands, he's like, oh, everybody's gonna see how awesome I am. The king drops the bomb. King's like, that's a great idea, Haman. Quick, you go get my royal robe. You go get my horse, just like you've described. And then I want you to go to Mordecai, the Jewish man. You know the guy. He sits at my gate almost every day. I want you to put him on that horse and I want you to lead him through the town and I want you to shout, this is what the king has done for the man whom he delights to honor. Right? And that's where we can picture Haman's jaw about dropping. It's like the shark. That's why I showed the shark, right? It's like only maybe a little less menacing at this point. (laughs) So Haman goes off and he does what the king commands him to do and he puts on the royal robe. I mean, you can just see, he's probably just festering at this point. Helps Mordecai on the horse. He leads him around and parades him through the city. And when he gets done with it, he drops Mordecai back off outside the king's gate. And then we're told Haman covers his head in mourning and walks home. And the picture that came to mind as I read it was that that Charlie Brown song that dun 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 dun, 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 dun. I mean, he's just defeated. Now, why exactly he was in mourning, we're not exactly sure, but it seems like it's, it's like a literary device here. It's showing us that Mordecai and Haman have switched places in the story, right? They've switched places of honor and dishonor. So Haman goes home, and his head is covered in mourning, and he can't do, he doesn't have time to do a whole lot more other than just sort of worry his wife and get her worked up, when all of a sudden the king's eunuchs come and they fetch him for dinner. Because remember, he was scheduled to have a second dinner with the king and queen that night, and he has spent all day parading Mordecai through the city. So he's probably exhausted, and he's like, okay, I'm going to dinner. So again, the three of them are dining, and the wine is flowing, and the king turns to his wife, and he asks Queen Esther, he says, what is your wish, Queen Esther? That will be granted to you. What is your request? I'll give you anything. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And this time Esther says, well, you've asked me my request. My wish, and you've asked me my request. My wish is that you spare my life, and my request is that you spare the lives of my people. We've been sold into death. And this king, who is so brainless, he's like, What? Who is he? Where is he? Who is the guy that dares to do this? Right? You know, not understanding his own complicity at all. And so there they are at the dinner table, and Esther replies, The adversary and enemy. It is he, the vile Haman. And so the king is furious. And he's so mad that he gets up and he takes a little walk to go on a breather. He goes out to the palace garden, which leaves Queen Esther and Haman the villain alone. And I think the reason for having the king briefly exit the scene and leave Esther alone with Haman is the setup for the next little comedic gotcha moment. Because as soon as the king leaves, Haman realizes that he's dead meat. Right, He is going down, and so he gets on his knees, and he starts begging and pleading with Esther for his life. And the way it's set up is this, is has, Esther is reclining on a couch, right, which was probably just some cushions that were laid out on the floor around the meal that they were sharing. So Esther is lying down, rec- probably on this side, she'd eat with her right hand, not her left. Left hand is unclean in that culture. So... She's leaning like this, and Haman is like, oh my gosh, my, my life is in Esther's hands, you know? So I don't know if all of you can see But he starts getting down and like bowing and begging, and she's right here. And you can just see the comedic scene if all of a sudden the king walks in and sees this from behind. <coughs> do, you understand? do you understand what's going on there? <laughs> Rachel reminded me there was a scene like that in, what was it? American Beauty. I don't remember the scene, but if you do, then maybe that's helpful. And so all of a sudden, um, the king comes in, and he's like, what is going on here? Does this man mean to ravish the queen in my palace? Now, that's probably not what was happening, right? I think it was a comedic scene, because Haman would be pretty stupid to try and ravish the queen against her will to rape her. When the king is already mad, and the king stepped outside, and he doesn't know when the king's gonna be back, And there were eunuchs present in the room, which they tell us here in a moment. So the eunuchs are meant to protect the queen. But what I think this scene is, it's supposed to be one of those like, here comes the climax, not only is he caught in this terrible, like, lie, genocide, paying people to kill everyone, but now he's being like, ah, like deer in headlights, I'm caught. The king now thinks I'm doing this other thing and I'm just trying to beg for mercy for my very life. All right, everything is starting to close in around him. So as soon as the king comes in and is like, what are you doing? The eunuchs come up and they place a hood over his head and they tell the brainless king, and they said, you know, there happens to be a stake that's just been put up in this guy's property. It's about 75 feet tall. know, I think he meant to put Mordecai, that guy that saved your life, on it. Just, Just saying. And so the king was like, yes, off with his head. Impale Haman on that very stake on which he meant to impale Mordecai. And so that's what they did. And then we have here yet another way that Haman and Mordecai have switched places in the story, right? It's this poetic ending. But there's still one problem that's left unresolved the order to have all of the Jewish people throughout the Persian empire exterminated was still in effect. And that day was coming quickly. So Queen Esther then fell at the feet of her husband, weeping and begging for him to spare the lives of her people. And so the king agreed and he dispatched couriers to all 127 provinces in the Persian empire, canceling the order to commit genocide and specifically giving permission to the Jewish people to defend themselves, should anyone try and attack them regardless. And it says this news was met with great joy throughout the land, and there was feasting, and there was celebrating. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that that echoes the beginning of the story, which starts with feasting and celebrating and partying throughout the land, right? So this is coming full circle. But there's also a really dark side to the ending, right? Because not only was the villain impaled on a stake, which is gruesome enough, but so were all ten of his sons alongside of him, I know. Right? Were they guilty of anything? We don't know. So it just seems like a pure revenge mode. And additionally, throughout the empire, it says that more, more than 70,000 enemies of the Jewish people were slaughtered after the king's order came to spare their lives. And so when you read that in, you think, well, what are we supposed to make of this? It's an awful lot of violence. And this is where I go back to the genre as a dark comedy, right? The genre as burlesque. Like when I watched the Meg, the Megalodon, I didn't want to care about the people who were being eaten by the shark. You know, when there was this extended scene in the middle of it where they were really trying to make you care about a few of these scientists, I was like, you know, I already have a heightened sense of of empathy in my life. I'm just here to like cheer for the shark, you know? (laughs) I want to be like, shark, shark, shark. And I'll cheer when he gets his due too because it makes me laugh. Like, I don't want to care about the thousands of people that they're showing in rafts on the beach. You know, what I want to see is like the shark coming up, you know, his mouth bigger than a school bus. And I'm like, get as many as you can. (laughs) Takes a big gulp, you know, people are flying out of his mouth. Like, that's why you pay the money to go to that movie. (laughs) Does that make me a bad person? Maybe a little. (laughs) You know, but you laugh at the things that scare you because it takes the power of those things away a little bit. And so I look at the story of Esther, and I think, you know, that violence in Esther didn't take place in a historical sense, right? That's not a historical fact that happened. But the original audience would have been a defeated, oppressed people telling themselves stories of strength and of overcoming. Right, this book was written down after the Babylonian exile. The Jewish people had been carried off by their enemies. Their cities destroyed, their temple destroyed. And all of that actually did happen right in the year 600 BCE. And so as they t- returned to the torn down city of Jerusalem, they started compiling a number of stories that we now call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And that includes this one. Right? It was like they needed to hear stories of strength and of hope, and they needed to reinforce their identities of strength and of hope. You know, I was thinking about Aretha Franklin this week, as many of us were. Rest in peace, Saint Aretha. And I was reading through some of her biography, as some of you may also have been. And I was thinking about how that woman could sing R-E-S-B-E-C-T with such conviction. You know, she could sing that song and own it like nobody else could. But when you read the, the stories of her early life, She had an incredibly difficult early life. I mean, not just being a black woman in America, and a black woman in America at that time, but she lost her mom early. She had her first kid by the age of 12. She had her second kid by the age of 15. And we can just imagine whatever angst, maybe even violence involved in that. And then she married a man who abused her before she left him. I thought, you know, when that woman was singing R-E-S-B-E-C-T, it wasn't from a place of like living a, a life of dominance, right? She was not Haman singing, you need to bow down to me, Mordecai. That was not the spirit with which that was being sung, but it was coming from a place of vulnerability. And she's singing that in spite of the hardships and the trials and the things that were unfair in her life, that she is still worthy of being owed respect, gosh darn it, R-E-S-B-E-C-T, find out what that means to me, a little respect, I get tired of keeping on trying, I'm not lying, when you come home, respect, or else you might walk in and find out I'm gone, just a little bit, I gotta have just a little bit, a little respect, just a little bit, right, I mean, that is being sung, like, I am worthy of this. I think of it a little bit like Beyonce standing up at the Super Bowl halftime a couple of years ago, right? She's paying homage to the Black Panthers in a dance of incredible strength. In the midst, black men are dying in police shootings at far higher higher rates than white people. African Americans are not coming at this issue from a position of strength within our empire. But Beyonce gets up and prophetically declares that in spite of this, her people are strong and they are going to overcome Right? We're a people who are former slaves, we're still treated as second-class citizens in many regards, and we are going to declare that we are in fact dignified, graceful, merciful, purposeful, powerful people in spite of how the larger culture sees us, in spite of how we are painted. And this is how I see Esther. Right? This is right in the tradition of the Bible Esther's told in comedic form, but the Jewish people are saying, you know, we might be down and out. Our cities might have been torn down. Our temple might have been taken brick by brick. But you know what? Gosh darn it. We are a dignified, graceful, merciful, purposeful, powerful people. We are like Esther and Mordecai. We are royalty. And we can declare this in our weakness. And we can remember who we are. And we can remember that God will have our back. And we will remember that bad things come to evil people and that there is justice in this world and we can hope it so we can build a better future for ourselves and for our people. Amen. And in fact, we are going to feast every year henceforth and remind ourselves that we are beloved of God. And that is why they read that story every year at Purim. Right? This is the last two chapters. It says you are going to read this story every year on this holiday and remind yourselves of who you are. And this, for me, is the ultimate takeaway of the book of Esther, right? It reminds us that no matter where we are in life, that no matter how oppressed we feel, no matter how, like, tired we are, how much every day just feels like getting through the motions, it doesn't matter how hard work has become, no matter what is going on, we are beloved of God. And God is on our side, and God works for our good And that doesn't mean bad things are going to happen to us or aren't going to happen to us. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to us. But it does mean that God is with us through the storm, right? You remember that scene where Esther is talking with Mordecai and Mordecai says to her, you know, maybe you were placed here for such a time as this, right? God is with you. It seems scary. It seems overwhelming. You might die, but God is with you. And this tells us God sees us not as the oppressed, beleaguered people, but he sees us as royalty, like Esther and like Mordecai. We're children of the Most High God, we are saints, the New Testament writers say. We are people who exercise love and peace and justice in the realm of God in our lives. And we come together to remember who we are so we can carry this hope and we can carry on with expanding God's good realm together. Right? That's why we come to faith gatherings. That's why we share our stories, to remind ourselves of who we are in God and to have God breathe encouragement into us so we can keep going. So that's what I want to spend a little bit of time doing this morning. So at the end of most sermons, we, we try and take two to three minutes of either silence or a guided meditation. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a guided meditation with us. And I want us to start by just relaxing, get yourself comfortable Spirit of the living God, we know you're here. We ask, Lord, that you would be tangibly felt by us, that you would be speaking to us this morning. As you're relaxing, imagine yourself laying on a raft in the ocean. And as you're laying there, concentrate on feeling your vulnerability, your smallness, the largeness of everything else around you. Just sit in that space. What does it smell like? What does it sound like out there? Mm-hmm. And from this space a feeling vulnerable, offer something before God that's been causing you stress or where you're like, man, I could just really need some encouragement in this space of my life. It could be personal relationships, it could be work, whatever it is. And just picture yourself just sort of laying that open before God. like to spend a minute just let's just ask the holy spirit to speak words of encouragement and love and perseverance to us and if you start to get thoughts of discouragement or like oh this is stupid that's probably not god note it dismiss them let's just let's have a little faith and treat this like this is real right if god wants to speak to you that perhaps god speaks to us in this way And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak words of encouragement into us and that we could receive them. as we remain in our posture of meditation, I'm going to read Psalm 23 aloud. And if you know it and you want to say it with me, that's fine, otherwise maybe just let the words of this Psalm just wash over you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.